Welcome to the Open Pantry Podcast for another episode. Thanks for tuning in. Now, before we get started, I just wanted to introduce you to our new sponsor, who is called Mercury Neuro. So if you haven't heard of them before, they're doing amazing things in the coffee machine game. They're out of Melbourne. They're incredible engineers and designers and fantastic quality coffee equipment. So Mercury Neuro is actually a coffee machine, optimizes performance, maximizes results for your coffee extraction, milk texturing, and also an accurate hot water delivery. It's exceptional, I've seen it in person. Jordan, who's the CEO, is an incredible guy and his team of engineers and designers are doing fantastic work. So check them out at mercuryneuro.com.au. Now, with the show. Welcome to the Open Petri Podcast for yet another episode. Fantastic to have you listening and enjoying another podcast. The hospitality and travel industry has obviously been decimated during this time. So it's fantastic to get someone who's right at the cold face of travel, tourism, hospitality uh, in Australasia uh, on this podcast with me. Shane Byer is the MD for Southeast Asia for SSP. Asia Pacific, which controls a lot of food brands within airport and on-the-go venues in, uh, in Australasia. Shane, thanks so much for joining me. Morning. Thanks for inviting me, Sean. My pleasure. Um, so let, you're a very different guest because you are, you are talking about, you know, certain parts of food, which people probably think about, you know, at their busiest point of time, you know, and, and, but they're so incredibly important and the, and the food scene inside airports especially has improved, you know, so much over the last 10 to 15 years. Your brand being, being, uh, being one of those who have who've brought it to be much, much better. Do you want to talk about, and I want to get into that in the podcast, um, but do you want to talk about how you started out in the industry? Because I know you come from a food background, which is so, so important in a business like yours. Uh, yeah, interesting question. <laughs> I, uh, I started like most 15 year olds working for McDonald's started in Melbourne. I grew up in Melbourne. Mm-hmm. So Furniture Gallery McDonald's first nice. store that I, that I started never, in, never intended to work in food um, at all was, mm-hmm. was not interested, but it was a job paid the bills. Mm-hmm. Um, I always wanted to be an electrician funnily enough. Really? Uh, and as I went through school, uh, started an apprenticeship, left year 12, started an apprenticeship, uh, absolutely loved it. And then the recession hit in 1990 and I got made redundant. Couldn't get back into it. Luckily, uh, I actually listened to my parents and stayed at McDonald's as a casual. Went back in full time while I figured out what I was going to do, and the rest is history. Kind of went on from there. So <laughs> it was sort of a, an accidental pathway that I mm-hmm. took. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I got into management, it, I actually started to enjoy it, and then you know, aspirational, and, and started to take on larger roles. So yeah, yeah, yeah it was sort of wasn't a path that was designed. Put it that way. Mm-hmm. So, um, and from then on, uh, pretty much through McDonald's, um, worked for a company that used to service the McDonald's franchisees mm-hmm. around Australia with all their sort of IT solutions. Um, okay. Became a national manager for that, did that for seven years, and they wanted to get back into food again specifically, and then mm-hmm. made my way through there. And then over the journey, it's been sort of been able to take um, larger steps. So, I took a role in the Middle East, did that for several years. 
running a commercial division um, mm-hmm. for the military, US and British and UN and so on, all through Africa and the Middle East, came back to Australia uh, and then essentially took on larger scale roles to, to where I am now. So uh, SSP has been an interesting journey, started there about four and a half years ago now to take on Australia first and then mm-hmm. after about 18 months got asked to take over Thailand. Uh, and then last year got asked by the board to take on a larger role. So, yeah, it's the last four and a half years has grown pretty quickly. Um, uh, and then obviously the last six months, which I'm sure we'll go into, has mm. been pretty chaotic. Yeah, so, a, bit, a bit. Yeah, that's sort of my, my the story in a nutshell. Do you reckon, uh, how important do you think that start out working with such a big brand like McDonald's was and getting that management? know that management experience yeah under your belt quickly do you you look back and think that was incredible or yeah i I do um you know it's been without giving away my age it's been over 30 years so Mm -hmm. um and i to this day the day that i started with mcdonald's with obviously other colleagues uh i'm still friends with them so for that alone um i've had significant mentors over the journey um, I've had, um, yeah, I still remember um, one of the managers, Alec at uh, Fern Tree Gully when I first started and I was struggling with a couple of sort of areas and he really took me aside and said, let me show you what to do and stood by my side for about an hour and a half one night and just sort of mm-hmm. walked me through it. And those sort of things stick yeah. um, and that was 30 years ago and that's kind of the journey I take now with people mm-hmm. is I sort of say, let me walk you through how you do this because I know that that kind of changed the way that I looked at management. Mm. Um, don't get me wrong, I've had some not great managers over the years, but you learn from them as well. Yes. Um, and just dis- discipline, attention to detail, they're things now that I look at and I suppose some of the times I get frustrated because I sort of look at it and think, why can't other people see that? Yes. Um, because McDonald's is, you know, for, for whatever you say about McDonald's, it drills discipline into you. Mm. And it, it's helped me uh, for 30 years to be able to go into organisations be able to, you know, analytically look at things, look at situations, pick them apart, find solutions. So it's one of the best training grounds I've ever been on. Yeah. Um, you know, I highly recommend it. Um, people say a lot about it, but it kind of has got me to where I am today because a lot of those lessons that I still um, still abide by um, and also the people, the people I've met over the journey has, have been phenomenal. You know, that's been really good. Yeah. I find so, yeah, that's, that's kind of... I was going to say, I find that with a lot of people who started out with McDonald's. I didn't work with um, um, with McDonald's when I started, but I certainly know a lot of people who do and uh, who did. And um, yeah. I think it's a, yeah, it's a great grounding. I think it places important. I think what it does is it places importance on structure for people in their, in their first or second job, you know, um, usually. And I, I think that's a, that's a real marker for any employment, but especially in the hospitality industry. Yeah, it's interesting enough. And, and I think those that have worked McDonald's forever and try to do a different job struggle. Yeah. Um, I suppose I, I was in it long enough, but I had sort of 10 years of McDonald's and then I spent seven years out of McDonald's, but still associated with McDonald's. So I wasn't working in a restaurant, but I was working with franchisees around the country yeah. Yeah. and help, helping them. Um, but I was still in, uh, I still have my foot in the door. Mm-hmm. Um, and that helped me to kind of slowly step away. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I've, found you know particularly in this this company and other companies 
things aren't as organized as McDonald's. So often I find if candidates walk in and they say, what do you mean you don't have this process or why is this system not here? Mm. I'm used to doing it this way. Mm. The entrepreneurial spirit in SSP is, okay, there's a problem. We don't have that system. So Mm -hmm. you can either complain about it or you can fix it and provide a solution. Mm -hmm. I'm the latter. And so I'll look at it and go, okay, yeah, it's not here. What are we going to do? And then let's, and and McDonald's has taught you how to do that. But it's a double-edged sword because if you become too ingrained in McDonald's and you go to something else and you go, I can't do this because the system's not there. Yes. Automatically you become automatic and you, you you lose that ability to kind of go, okay, I can now influence this and I can now develop a system taking those skills and so on. So yeah, it's, it's one of the things that every organization I've gone into, it's not the same as what you'd expect. Um, but then you learn the skill sets to turn around and start to fix that. So it's made it a lot easier for me to kind of come into a system um, or into an organization that doesn't have a system, provide a solution and roll it out and get success. Mm. Um, and that's what's really helped me over the years. It's a really important insight. Um, yeah. For those people who don't, who don't understand sort of how food premises work inside airports, do you want to just explain a bit what SSP does and, and maybe how that actually, that situation works inside airports? Yeah, absolutely. No, good question. Um, well, first things first. So it's select service partners. Mm-hmm. So essentially where, um, what, what we um, state is we're the food travel experts. So we don't just do airports. We do mass transit. So we'll, in the mm-hmm. UK, we'll do, in Europe, we'll do rail. We'll do motorways in, in, in Europe um, and so on. So wherever there's mass transit, Mm-hmm. We're not really one of those brands that would say work in a stadium or work in a operate in a mall or downtown mm-hmm. and strip mall and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, because we kind of like to be able to know um, to a level of certainty, ironically, in this current time, how many people are going to go through the door. Yes. Um, and, and, and believe me, and I've said this before, the two worst industries right now to work in are hospitality and travel. Yep. Of which we specialize in. So, yeah. <laughs> Uh, as I've said, the irony's not lost on me. So it's, um, <laughs> it's a challenging time. Uh, yeah. But so essentially what we do is we, we partner with airports. We're in 35 countries around the world, you know, over 200 airports. And we essentially um, work with an airport. We're a mass consolidator. We'll, you know, work with them over a long period of time to kind of understand what they're looking for. You know, if they want coffee, what kind of brands do they like to get a sense? Mm. So when we go to tender, we'd already partnered with those brands because we kind of get a sense of where we think the airport are going with it. Mm-hmm. And then we'll act as a, as a franchisee. So we'll go to the brand, sign the brand, we'll bid on um, with the airport. And then if we win it, uh, then we will build the store, run the store, um, design the store. We'll do everything, complete turnkey, we'll do it. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's a brand, brand, then we'll do it under the requirements of the brand. So we don't say Starbucks, for instance, we won't just say, we'll build it this way. Um, we follow the Starbucks principles. We mm-hmm. send our managers to the Starbucks training. We do everything as a franchisee would. Um, it's slightly different commercially in how it works, obviously being an airport, but that's essentially what we'll do. But then Starbucks, for instance, we've got a global partnership. Starbucks will have several hundred stores. Mm. Um, we've got global partnerships with Burger King. You know, in Thailand, I've got, I think, 18 Burger King stores. Mm-hmm. So we do a lot of these partnerships globally um, as a global arrangement. And then once we've done that, um, we can easily then roll it out into a new country under that sort of umbrella agreement. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it means then we've got, you know, we've essentially got 500 brands in our portfolio mm-hmm. um, from Starbucks, from Yo Sushi from the UK, Upper Crust from the UK, Starbucks, Burger King, 
um, Gordon Ramsay, Jamie Oliver, um, you know, all global brands um, mm-hmm. all around the world. Um, we would then contextualize it to a local market. So, for instance, I'm currently working on a tender for Hobart. They've been very specific. They only want to see local brands. So, whilst I've got Burger King, Starbucks, all those sort of brands, they're not interested mm-hmm. because Tasmanians want, or Tasmanian. people from Hobart want, mm-hmm. want tomatoes, tomatoes, they don't care about Starbucks. Yeah. They want a Tasmanian brand. So, then we have to adapt really quickly and work with a local and, and try to find a local brand, understand what the airport want. Um, negotiate with a local brand um, and often keeping in mind local brands aren't a Starbucks or aren't a Burger King. So they might not have all the same systems in mm. place. We have to be able to kind of get a sense of whether we think we can work with that brand and it will work for us. Um, it may not be perfect, but there's things we know we can kind of live with. So you got to adapt really quickly. So we yeah. have to think on our feet all the time. We have to be able to contextualize depending on what the client wants all the time. There's a whole range of different things we can do. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a very dynamic business. So, you know, I've got around 60 brands um, that I run in about 160 restaurants across Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm walking into a Nippon Ramen today and then tomorrow I'm going to be walking into a Burger King and the day after I'm going to be walking to Pizza Company and then a Dairy Queen and you got to think on your feet yeah. continually. Yeah, absolutely. It's different so if I had 160, right? yeah, it's different mm-hmm. if I had 160 McDonald's stores, then it's just scale. Yes. Um, yeah. But some of these brands, we might have two locations and some we might have 15 locations and some mm-hmm. different. Mm-hmm. So you're forever having to think on your feet. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's a very dynamic role. Um, you know, I've got around 2,000 staff um, overall um, over the four countries. So, yeah, it's a, it, and, and given the last six months um, has been quite challenging. Yeah, uh, indeed. Like 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 most organisations, you know, you 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 get through the day, and that gets you to tomorrow, and then you get through tomorrow, um, and that's our priority right now. So yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's a hard enough role as it is, and then you add this complexity with COVID. Yeah, which so, I which I want to talk about in a minute. But what I'm what I'm actually interested in after you answered that way was, is it is it easier to get when you when you go out to tender and you go for you know maybe five spots within an airport redevelopment is it easier to work with you know the smaller brands the bigger brands or is it purely the relationship that you have with those particular figureheads and stakeholders inside those brands uh there's yeah it's it's political the role's political in a way and and but not in a bad way Mm. um it's all, it's all relationships. So whether it's a supplier, whether it's a airport client. Um, and when we say, when we talk about client, we talk about the actual airport, mm-hmm. not someone like yourself, you know, someone like yourself coming to my restaurants is the customer. Yes. Um, I mainly deal with the airport client all the time. So whether it's a operational performance issue or trying to negotiate for you know, new outlets or whatever it is, we, build a relationship. We're pretty open with them. We'll talk about our performance and what's working, what's not. Um, we've sort of built that partnership behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that helps us. So if I take Brisbane as an example, we opened food collective in mm-hmm. Qantas terminal November last year. Yeah. Uh, now that was 18 months from the first discussions to go live. Wow. Um, and that was well before a tender even came out. We were talking to the airport client what is it they're looking for? If you remember, there was a Hungry Jacks in a subway and a yes. typical food court you see mm-hmm. everywhere. Yep. 
we both wanted something different. So whilst it was still a tender process, we spent a long time trying to understand what they're after. Um, and they really liked the sort of Eat Street and Eight Street in Brisbane and those kind of things, and they wanted something different. So we actually went away and started to look at what if the tender came out, what could we do differently? And we came up with Food Collective. Mm-hmm. And, and that was sort of a partnership with the airport and us. And we took a chance. It's never been done before in an Australian airport, right. that kind of concept. Yeah. So um, we opened six restaurants on the same day in the same location. Which is insane. So it was, <laughs> you think about, there was, there was 2,000 menu items, um, the, you know, six individual brands for staff training, um, the construction partners, DCB, you know, we've partnered with for many, many years. Mm-hmm. We're phenomenal in putting it together. It's such a, you know, building six restaurants in the one day, you know, opening on the same day, you would think you're crazy. Yes. Um, and they, they, they're involved from literally the design discussions until mm-hmm. go live um, mm-hmm. every step of the way because it was such a complex program. You know, there were so many stakeholders involved. <clears throat> we essentially had, you know, six countries working on it. I had people from the UK uh, Hong Kong, Singapore, um, Thailand, Australia, you know, it was highly, com- probably one of the hardest projects I've done. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the stakeholder engagement was phenomenal and it all had to come together because if one area wasn't working, um, it was a struggle. And keeping in mind, building in an airport environment is probably the hardest thing you can ever do. Yes, You've got security, you've got only limited hours to build, you've got... Um, a whole range of different things. So DCB is an example, you know, they kept getting thrown curveballs that were just unforeseen by the airport and all sorts mm-hmm. of things. And um, you can only build four or five hours a night because you can only build while the airport's not trading. You've got yeah. to take all your tools through security. Um, it's highly complex, but that's what we do. That's what we're good at. Mm. Um, so the airports tend to work with us or, you know, people like us, they they really shy away from the mum and dad local operators because they just don't understand the complexity. Yeah. You know, we've been doing this for nearly 60 years for SSP. Mm-hmm. You think we've got a couple of things right over that journey and, yeah. and learn from the mistakes as well. Mm-hmm. So definitely know what yeah. you're doing. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So let's talk about the travel industry. Um, obviously it's been, been decimated worldwide. Um, different <clears throat> countries are doing completely different things. Um, obviously with SSP, you've got, you know, you're over 200, um, 200 airports around the world. How do you think it's going to come back, Shane? What do you, th- what do you think is going to be oh. the catalyst for people coming back? Do you think it's going to be cheap airline flights? Do you think it's going to be, you know, better, se- better security and hygiene, you know, facilities for people to make them feel more safe? Like, what are you thinking? Yeah, look, it's, it's, it's impossible for me to answer, um, it's crystal ball kind of thinking of what's going to happen. Mm. Um, you know, even Alan Joyce coming out and if mm. you think of the last four months, how many times has he changed? Yeah. It's going to be the end of the year. Then it's going to be June. Then we don't mm. think it's going to happen until July or August. Mm-hmm. Um, it, Cause it keeps moving. Cause you're dealing with a disease that no one understands fully yes. and no one can control. And we're trying to plan around it. Mm. So, <laughs> um, if I, if, if I take recently, you know, we've, in the budget process time at the moment, uh, I think I'm probably on version 18 in the last sort of two to three months. Um, wow. Had a run through with the board board a couple of days ago. And then yesterday, Singapore turn around and say that they're going to look at a travel bubble between Brunei and New Zealand and they're going to open up. Now I run Singapore. So Monday, when I finalised the budgets and sent them through, that wasn't part of the component. Yesterday, 
when they said they're going to open it, that's now part Massive of it. So now change. I have to go back yeah. mm-hmm. and look at now. I don't know yet what that's going to mean, but it I can't ignore it, um, and I'll have to go back and look at it again. But that's how fluid. Like literally, we'll we'll spend hours. My CFO in Australia and Thailand spend hours putting together. I'll sign off on it, and then twenty four to forty eight hours later, something new will be released, and then we have to sit back and go, "Well, is this still relevant?" And then we start again. So it, it's just so fluid. I think people have a genuine want and desire to travel, mm. but they're very, very hesitant um, to do so. Governments don't want either foreigners or their citizens to come in contact with the disease. So at the moment, it's just an eradicate solution, particularly in Australia. Mm. Um, and then hope for the cure comes out. Now, whether that's the right way to go, time will tell i don't necessarily think that's the solution because ultimately what's the magical number is it zero yes is it 10 mm-hmm. um what, what's what's the solution um i think these travel bubbles will be the way of the future for the time being and if there's an outbreak then they'll pull it back but um i think that you know if I, I flew back to thailand a couple of weeks ago there was about 160 to 170 packs on the flight so it was fairly full, but all the middle rows were empty. Right. Mm-hmm. So, and the process to get on board and then get the other side was just intense. Um, you know, the, the way that this, the health and hygiene way that they took care of the flight, I've never seen it like that. Mm. I think, unfortunately, that will be the way of the norm. And I sort of said to a number of people, if you think about 9-11 and what that changed, to how security. that changed the airline mm. industry, Mm-hmm. And then now we just take that as, you know, everyday life. You know, you can't mm-hmm. take liquids on board unless mm-hmm. you're more than hundred mil. Um, and we just accepted that and moved on. I mm-hmm. think there's going to be ways with this now that we don't even know yet, but eventually we'll just say, well, that's just cost of doing business. That's yeah. just what we have to do. Now that could be, you have to get to an airport three hours before. Mm-hmm. Um, it could be uh, a number of things. And whilst inconvenient and we might look at it and, and raise our eyebrows now, in a year or two's time, we might just say, well, that's just what you have to do. Yeah. Um, so I think, I don't think, uh, I, I, I am very confident in it won't go back to normal. There's, the, you know, what, what is normal now? Normal is going to look very different. Yeah. Um, even, even here in Savannah Boom, in Bangkok where I am, um, and they've been doing this since February, to walk into the airport, you get temperature checked. And you get like a little sort of, you can see oh, it, yeah, you get a little dot. Yeah, yeah. If that, yeah. if I happen to walk back and get a coffee and that's come off, they'll check me again. Right. And every day, every day they change the color, they change the systems. You can't cheat right. it. So you can't cheat um, it. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, you know, they're, they're, they're very, very strict in how they deal with it. And so there's a lineup to walk into the airport because everybody has to get checked. Um, and they've been doing that since February. Cause I, I came back to Australia in April um, or end of April for a few mm-hmm. months. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were doing it since February and it just became the new norm. Everyone, nobody even thought about it. It's just, that's what you do. Mm-hmm. So I think those sort of behaviors are unfortunately going to be here for, I think the long run. Yeah. Um, until there's a vaccine and then until they can kind of eradicate it, if that's at all possible. Mm. But yeah, it's, I think the whole dynamics of air travel is going to change. I also think the other thing is unfortunately for us, it's going to change companies' behaviors. Because, you know, as we're doing now Zoom calls, um, previously you go, oh, I'm going to be in Sydney. Let's catch up. Yes. Now the new norm is let's just do it over Zoom. A, because we can't, we need to cut costs. 
yep. be, we physically can't travel. Yeah. Once everyone can travel, I think companies are going to say, well, hang on, it worked for six months. Why is it now a problem? Mm. It saves us money. Do you really need to go to Melbourne? Do you really need to go to Sydney? Why don't you just do a Zoom call? I think those behaviours are going to change um, significantly um, because companies need to tighten their belt for the next you know, one, two, three years. Um, and obviously that doesn't help people like us because we rely on someone like you as a corporate going through the airport. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so, so we're, ha- we're actually a- adapting our model to, uh, for, for that reason of what we think, not just passengers flying because of the disease, but what we think is the new norm. That's kind of what we're looking at doing. So how did, if, you can, if you're allowed to, can you explain what, what you think that's going to look like? Obviously, things like food courts and stuff like that have the ability to probably change. Like, are you thinking more satellite grab-and-go kind of yeah it's an it's a yeah it's a it's an interesting dilemma and it's literally all i do every day is think about where do i see the business Mm. um uh you know i'm sort of into the weeds on a whole lot of things at the moment which ordinarily i wouldn't do but you kind of have to yeah um i think i think that um without going to sort of specifics um you know in in my region, I got down to 3% of last year's revenue. That was what I was running at. So I dropped 97% at the height of, um, for us, when the pandemic was, which was around about April, when I literally shut all the stores down in Thailand, mm-hmm. um, came back to Australia, I shut them down, shut Singapore, shut Malaysia. Um, we had three tiny stores in Australia, which were probably the last stores you'd expect <laughs> were trading. They've, they've traded all the way through. One of them, mm-hmm. I actually, Melbourne, I had to close that about four or five weeks ago for obvious reasons. Yeah. But, um, and then since obviously I've reopened sites, we've got around 35% of the stores in Thailand here now open and we're kind of going to hit a wall now because most of those are domestic. Right. Um, and I can't, I can't really go much further um, yes. until yeah. the board borders open. So, um, so yeah, we got down to around, we dropped about 97% off 2019 passenger levels. Um, and we're really looking at this now saying over the next 12 months, we probably expect to be at about 40 to 50% by the end of say next year. Um, end of next that's about year. where we think. Wow. Yeah. So international, international, we're kind of speculating. It won't really start till June, July in Australia next year. And even then it might be say at uh, 10%. Um, minimal numbers. It's going to take a long time to recover. So it's very realistically scary. for us, we, you know, and we're not the experts in sort of predicting this because, you know, we don't necessarily have direct access to government and so on, mm. but we think it'll take, you know, we international will probably be by the end of 2023 where it will really start to come back at 2019 levels. So we'll have lost that growth all the way through. Um, domestic will a country that has a domestic capacity um, maybe with the exception of the US with what's going on there but um, <laughs> they'll, they'll, they'll bounce back sooner because China we're seeing some good numbers now in China um, and how that's bouncing back so yeah we'll, um, we'll start to see a lot of um, uh, growth hopefully when I say a lot compared to what it used to be mm. um, so it's yeah we'll start to see some aspects which will be pleasing but yeah it's a um, it's a bit of a struggle just to get through and and now priority over all this has always always been staff yeah of so, course of course um, 
have have you looked yeah. after them during this time? Because obviously you're um, you know, you taught to go to three percent revenue, and and then hopefully by the end of next year have forty percent revenue. Like that's a that's a lot of people that you've had to you know unfortunately let go and and make decisions on. And obviously your your current team, you're making sure that they're they're okay, right? And they're feeling secure and safe and all those kind of things. Like how have you made sure you've done that, Shane? Yeah, it's an interesting question, and and look, I'm 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 not alone in this. Um, every company is going through the exact same dilemma. Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose for us, the the challenge is it's been so fluid. So, in Asia, obviously where it originated in China, we started to get sort of uh, rumblings that something was going on in China mm-hmm. early on uh, through an internal team, um, and then it hit Thailand in January. I, I think I was on leave and came back early because we, I just could see that this was going to get ugly. So we started closing a whole lot of stores down in, in Thailand. I started closing stores down in Singapore. Australia hadn't really hit yet massively mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. by March, but we could see what was coming. So, you know, we we're fortunate to be able to warn the team there, start putting plans in place and start shutting down. Mm-hmm. The challenge was to convince the airports there that this is going to get ugly um, we need to look at rent deals now and they weren't overly interested at that time because it really hadn't hit Australia massively. Um, they weren't in that headspace yet. And we sort of felt like chicken little, you know, the sky's falling. And, <laughs> and by the end of March, pretty much we're all shut in Australia. It was that quick. Yeah. Um, and then the airports were, you know, keen to talk. So, uh, so from a staff point of view, it, uh, it's been difficult I suppose I over-communicated at the start. So, you know, I've got a senior management team in Singapore, Thailand and Australia. I was having daily calls with them on what's the next step, what's the plan for the next week, for the next month, for the next three months, over-communicating more so so that they could see some calmness from me and clarity um, because I felt that was the best way to do it rather than sort of be say nothing. Yes. Um, so they became used to that and then it was like, okay, planned your work and work your plan. And then we started to step that back to three meetings a week, two meetings a week, and now we're on one meeting a week, but now there's a lot more clarity going forward. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, most of those meetings were, how do we now communicate this to the staff? What does that look like? So when JobKeeper came out, for instance, I was actually here in Thailand. Um, I was watching the presser with uh, my team in Australia and the Prime Minister comes out and says, and ask your employer. <laughs> and we're video, no we're video conferencing. I'm, uh, I'm, 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 I'm looking at my head of HR and going, so Sharon? She goes, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and oh, then no. the phone call, and then the phone call started um, uh, to her. So when am I getting my money? What, what happens? Um, so it's like, okay, so how do we deal with this? Let's put a statement out. It's just been announced. Please allow us a week to look into this. We'll come back to you. Um, so we learned how to handle that pretty quickly. Obviously, you know, I was getting calls from staff and emails. Um, you know, I've been there six months. Does that mean I can't, you know, all these questions that mm. all employers have for JobKeeper. Yeah. Um, I know as much as the next guy from what I saw when I watched the press conference. Yes. Um, and everyone was figuring it out. Now it's whether you say the government got it right or wrong, time will tell it. it they had to do something. Yes. Um, and, you know, the debate is whether a 1500 per person was the right way to go. Um, smarter people than I will figure that out. Mm-hmm. But 
we then, there was a convoluted process to become eligible. So, and we had to have the cash behind us to pay them out in the first instance to then get the money back. And not everyone was in that position to do so. And it was, was sort of quite stressful. Mm-hmm. Um, we kind of took a conscious decision and, and this is kind of um, led by our group CEO, Simon Smith, and down to Mark Angela, our Asia Pacific CEO. But we kind of took a stance of, um, with the, the management team in Australia, for instance, um, and the operations managers, we had everybody on 50% salary. So if they got JobKeeper, we would top it up to 50% of the salary. Now, mm. legally, we didn't have to do that, but we mm. felt from a, um, from a loyalty and an ethical standpoint, it was the right thing to do. Um, now, that obviously cost us money, mm. um, particularly when all my stores were shut. Um, and so we then had a phased approach of some have now stepped up a little bit on salary. And for that, we asked for they work one day a week. That was the requirement, which was reasonable. Mm. Um, some got, didn't get a full cut compared to others because they were essential as in like, they just, they couldn't work one day a week. They just, they wouldn't get it done. Their workload. So a lot of my executive team, for instance, were working six days a week, um, and seven days a week. Cause we just had the workloads actually gone through the roof. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so a lot of it's been communicating to the staff continually. This is what's going to happen next month. This is what it means to you. Um, from a redundancy point of view, I've been quite fortunate in, I haven't had to, to lay off many people. Obviously the casuals were all, all companies were pretty much the first casualties. Yeah. Um, uh, and then the rest, uh, I've made some executive changes and a few other things I've had to sort of do. And I'm pretty much there now with that. Mm-hmm. Um, if this goes on much longer without any upside, then I'll have to rethink that. But, mm. um, you know, we set up WhatsApp groups to the staff, um, WhatsApp groups to the executive team so we could com- communicate freely. Um, we've really over communicated deliberately and hopefully uh, we've got, we've taken the right path. Um, again, time will tell whether we've done the right thing. We've had other people that have been on reduced salaries that have left and got other jobs because they were able to get full time and a hundred percent. Good luck to them. I'm, you know, there's some yeah. industries that haven't really been hit and there's not much I can do about that. Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. Um, we're going to be a very different business coming out of this a lot leaner. Mm-hmm. Um, even things like now with meetings and so on uh, and workload, I'm li- literally looking at everything now and saying, do we really need to do that? Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, is that, going to drive revenue because everything right now that hits my desk that I get asked by you know the board or anyone else to go to you know goes out to store I'm really pushing back now and saying is that going to drive revenue because if it isn't I'm not really interested unless it's a governance or a compliance mm. um, anything else I'm not interested in it's yeah. not a priority uh, because um, <laughs> it was interesting we opened some of the stores in food collective um, so we opened up a Westside Deli and Zapickle, a local burger brand. Yeah, burger brand. Um, we reopened. Yeah, we reopened those. And I was working from the airport because I just wanted to get out of home and actually go back to some kind of work. Yes. So the first week, first week we opened up a Westside Deli. I actually worked on the floor the whole week. Um, <laughs> cool. Uh, not nec- not necessarily making coffees because I kind of got kicked out by my team because I'm not that great at it. But <laughs> you, you, you know, you know, you're not, you know, you're not good when they go. Oh, sir, how about you go and make a sandwich? I'll take care of this. Kind of get the hint. <laughs> so politely, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, 
yeah, you, 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 your crap. So just go, <laughs> go move can, on, you make, can you make a ham and cheese? Can you make a ham and cheese sandwich? Because yeah, I can do that. So I don't take it personally. But um, uh, so I worked on the floor and I kept saying to all the you know managers there and the team there, why are we doing this? Um, mm. And then you get a blank look and silence. And why are we doing it this way? Eventually it kind of comes back uh, because that's what we were told to do. <laughs> Who did that? Uh, you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let the, let's yes. let's start again. I literally stripped everything out that I thought. So after West Side Deli, for instance, you know, we typically have 180 menu items. Mm-hmm. Um, we cut it down to about 19 or 20 mm-hmm. because wow. it, less staff. It just and just had to be ruthless. Um, and it's then it was whilst it was exhausting, a sort of you know 50, 60 hour week, um, and being on. I've, God, I can't remember the last time I was on my feet that long but it really taught me a lesson to kind of then go back to all the other markets and go, right, we need to rethink this because yeah. I'm overcomplicating it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, so then it was really me now trying to challenge the guys where they come back to me and go, so why do you want to do that? Not too complicated. Go back and relook at it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was actually one of the best things I've ever did for, for a long time. And I, I sort of would recommend to any managers there, if you're making decisions on reopening, actually spend time in the business and understand what it is you're asking. Makes a lot of sense. Um, it was, yeah, it was a good lesson I had to learn. Shane, we've talked a lot about, you know, different parts of the hospitality industry um, at the start of the podcast. Like what, what parts of hospitality and tourism do you think are going to be hit the hardest if you, if you, if you think from all the information you're getting, you know, um, a lot of international tourism doesn't come back in many shapes and forms mid next year. We don't get, back to 2019 levels till the end of 2023. That's, that's very scary. So what, what parts of the hospitality and tourism industry do you think are going to be hit the hardest from this pandemic? Yeah. I, I, yeah. It's an interesting question. I think the sort of the ancillary services. So if you take tour operators and if you take mm-hmm. um, all of those that are reliant on inbound tourism. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, if you look at Cairns, for instance, as one example, you got your reef operators, you've got all those kind of even hotels, you've got, they all rely on that tourist. Yes. Um, they're kind of at the end of the food chain. Um, whereas someone like us, I've got a domestic capacity. So whether it's corporate, whether it's, you know, mum and dad and the kids going away, saying Queensland is an example. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm kind of at the tip of the spear. So I see those and I get access to those straight away. But then yeah. the rest okay. of it, um, because they have to use us or they have to go to the airport. Mm-hmm. They don't have to get on a tour boat and they don't have to get on. Um, mm. So those are the ones I think, unfortunately, are going to fall by the wayside. Um, and even in our game, there's going to be a lot of consolidation over the years. I, I think in the next two to three years' time, the landscape will be very different mm-hmm. to what it is now. Yeah. Um, I just don't see it being the same. Um, let's end on a positive note because um, I think it's important during these times to have a positive question. Um <laughs> Absolutely. What um what are you looking forward to most post pandemic that you were doing before the pandemic started that you can't do now, but you're really excited to get back to, Shane? Ironically, travel. Um, <laughs> I, look at last, I, I look at last year. I did around about oh, five hundred thousand kilometres, mm-hmm. give or take, mm-hmm. um, in my role. But the best part, particularly living in Asia, I could duck over to Vietnam for a weekend or or Korea or, or, you know, and go and see something new. Um, it's a lot easier than traveling from Brisbane to 
Vietnam or Brisbane mm-hmm. to you know, Cambodia. Mm-hmm. So that kind of stuff, you know, seeing new things, exploring new things. And look, I've been very fortunate over the years and, you know, with, with my roles, I've seen some, been to some amazing places and seen some amazing things for work with the sort of tack on to the end of that trip, a bit of a side trip, <laughs> but um, it's, uh, it's one of the things I love. And that right now is kind of what I'm really disappointed not being able to do without going to a country and doing 14 days quarantine. Yes. <laughs> um, and, and, and having done quarantine twice this year so far. Um, <laughs> and, month probably, your life. <laughs> and, and, pro- and if I go back home to Australia for Christmas, it'll be a third time this year. Yes. Uh, assuming it's still going, it's still going to happen. Mm. Um, so that's the kind of normality. I, I love just being able to get on a plane, go to a country and I'm there in an hour or two hour flight. Yeah. Um, that's what I'm really kind of longing to get back to. Um, mm. Cause I've got a big list of places I still want to see. Um, and you think with all this travel, I kind of hate travel, but I still love travel. Uh, really. I've been very fortunate. It's very really fortunate. Very positive thing in your role, my friend. Um, yes, it is. It is. Mm. Shane, what's the best way that people can find out about SSP? I know that I know it's obviously a very different business, but maybe there are some people listening who have got a really good concept, uh, food concept and, and think it could help SSP in the next couple of years and, and want to do some work. So what's the best way to find out about what you guys do? Yeah, absolutely. Um, if you look up foodtravelexperts.com, um, that's mm-hmm. our global um, webpage. Obviously, I'm, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, I'm sure you can probably share my details, but yep. um, I, I look after Australia and, and point anyone in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but just because we may not be tendering at that time doesn't mean we won't look at a brand because there's a, often a long lead time. Uh, if I, as I said, I mentioned up, uh, mm. um, Food Collective before. 18 months. Um, mm. Yeah, we, we were really talking to Zipickle, for instance, for about 12 to 18 months before that tender. Mm. Um, so if you think about a typical franchise process, it's nowhere near that long. Yes. You literally yeah. walk up to a brand. I want to be a franchisee. They go through the paperwork. You know, they, they interview you. They do that process. Mm-hmm. And it's relatively quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got a lot of moving parts. We have to talk to a brand. We need to understand oper- we're, we're operators and we're very skilled operators. So unlike a typical franchisee, I would go and, and if a brand spoke to me, I'd go and pick it apart mm-hmm. to try to see whether or not it could, we, we could have the standards in place that we need and the systems. And there's a lot of brands I'll often look at and go, thank you very much, but unfortunately it's not right for us at the moment. Yeah. Because I may not think that I can scale that to what I need it to be and, and that sort of thing. So mm-hmm. Um, and, and conversely, it's not about us as well. There might be brands that go, uh, you know, we're very protective of our brand. We're not comfortable going at the airport because the operating models have to be very different, um, mm-hmm. and very tightly run. Um, and that's happened in the past and we respect that. Um, ultimately the brand owner, um, it's their baby. So we get that. We don't try to change the brand in any way. We'll just say, look, this wouldn't work better. Yes. In the airport space for the reasons why. And, and someone likes to pickle have been phenomenal. You know, the, the, the boys there have really worked with us. Um, you know, one of the things we said to them was we need a breakfast offer because 35% of the packs going through domestic is between 5.30 a.m. and 10.30 mm-hmm. a.m. Mm-hmm. Now, they're a typical burger brand that, you know, only happens at 5 p.m. weekdays, open yeah. on weekends, their beers, burgers, that doesn't work at 6 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. So to their credit, they came out with a phenomenal breakfast menu that they developed and we're the only ones that have got that at the airport. 
yeah, wow. to a point now where they're now getting hassled by their <laughs> customers downtown. When when we're we're not the airport all the time. Yes. Yeah, when can we get this? But that's phenomenal because yeah, we're awesome. helping that brand grow, and that's what we love doing. You know, we we aren't just about taking from the brand. We want to give back and work with a brand. And if we think we can help them with their systems, we've got access to suppliers. We've got access to a whole range of things. So um, the boys at Spickle, for instance, we kind of have been giving them some, you know, um, sort of advice, I suppose you call it, on some of the mistakes we've made and this mm-hmm. will work for you and, and so on. So it's kind of, it has to work both ways. Mm-hmm. And above all else, a lot of it when I'm talking to a brand is um, the same as if I'm employing someone to work for me can I work with this person is the ultimate question I ask myself. Yeah. If I don't think I can, I won't. I just won't there's, risk it. There's just no point, right? Yeah. Just no point. Um, and can they work with me? Um, yes. You know, mm-hmm. pre- I'm pretty, I've been known to be pretty demanding. So, um, and sometimes you have to be ruthless in, in, you know, not compromising in what you want. Yeah, of course. So, yeah, it's a, um, so I'm sure you'll put up my details, but yep. uh, obviously yep. I'm, I'm prevalent on LinkedIn and, um, have more than happy to talk to people. We've got a good team in Australia, um, good operators. You know, we've got around about 25 to 30 years of airport experience in my executive team in Australia. So as collectively. So yeah, it's a very, very strong team. So I'll make sure I, I link that in. Uh, but Shane, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. Thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of the Open Pantry Podcast. I really, really appreciate you listening and spending some time with me again. As always, if you could subscribe, if you can leave a review, I will be eternally grateful. So thank you so much. It's really, really simply to do, no matter what app you're actually using to listen to this podcast. Always, you can uh, leave me a little voice note as well. You'll see that in the show notes of this podcast. And lastly, thank you again to our new sponsor, Mercury Neuro, the leaders in coffee machine making all the way here in Melbourne. Uh, Jordan and team are doing a fantastic job. So make sure you check out all their kit at mercuryneuro.com.au. Until next time, stay safe.